0: Welcome everyone, Dr. Mercola helping you take control of your health. And today we're going to dive deep into the vaccine passports. And to help us explore that area, we have Nick Corbishley, who actually published a book called Scanned. Uh, and with the same publishing company that published my last book, The Truth About COVID. And we're going to explore how this is such a massive violation of privacy, why these passports were implemented. In fact, I think Nick and I both feel strongly that it is, it's probably one of the primary reasons that the COVID jabs were initiated. They weren't initiated to protect the public health. That is for darn sure, we know that in spades. They were most likely implemented so that they could use that as a justification for deploying these vaccine passports. So. That's the pretext of our conversation. Rick's, uh, Nick's written a whole entire book about it. So we're gonna dive deep in it today. So thank you for uh, uh, joining us. Welcome, and thank you for joining us, Nick. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Okay. So maybe we can start uh, on your backstory with respect to why you decided to write a book about this. Okay. Um, so
1: I am... Uh a journalist who's been writing about politics, finance, and economics for the last roughly the last 10 years. I'm based in Barcelona. Um, I've been writing for uh, two blogs in the United States uh, since 2013. I've been writing about questions of identity. I've been writing about questions of privacy. I've been writing about um, all these kinds of issues for at least five years, six years. I've been writing about the the risk of biometric identifiers. So when I started to see what was happening in Israel, Israel was the first country to launch, uh, or the first democratic country to launch digital IDs going back to February, 2021. When I started to see what was going on there, I began to get very concerned. Uh, I, I wrote an article in April, 2021, about, well, just simply raising my concerns and, and talking about the risks these vaccine passports pose. And then, little by little, I began to see what was happening in Europe. I, I'm, I'm based in Spain. I began to see what was happening in Italy. I began to see what was happening in France when the so called Green Pass was launched in June. And this was a document that was supposed to be created to enable travel between uh, countries. Uh, in Europe. And very quickly, it began to be used to control access um, to public services, access to public places within one's own country. Uh, We were beginning to see uh, restrictions that we'd never seen in our lifetime. And so little by little, little, by little, I began to write more and more. And this brought me to the attention of uh, the Vermont-based publisher Chelsea Green, uh, we we had some conversations and we decided that there was a, a, an opportunity to write about something that everybody should know about. It's not being talked about anywhere near, even at this stage, it's
0: not being talked about anywhere near as much as it should be.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I said it is. And uh, this may be one of the most important topics of the whole conversation with respect to what has happened in the last two years, uh, because, because of what that implies. And you certainly go into great detail in the book, but why don't you highlight some of the concerns that anyone should have about the implementation of these passports? Yeah, absolutely.
1: Um, number one, privacy. So we are going to have a lot less privacy going forward if these vaccine passports. And and the vaccine passports are ultimately a precursor to digital identity. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is clear as day. We're beginning to see this. I warn about this in my book for the last two or three days. I began to see developments taking place in Canada, and New Zealand and other places, which absolutely confirm uh, that it is essentially functioning as a gateway mm-hmm. to allow governments to herd us into a totally new reality where our actions, our movements, our thoughts, our behavior are tracked, surveilled, And it's not just about surveillance, this is about forced compliance. If we've learned one thing about the the vaccine passport, this is about changing the way we relate to government and it's about changing the way government relates to us, the governed. Um, if you do not do exactly what the government says going forward, whether that is putting one jab inside your arm, whether it's putting two jabs inside your arm, or however many jabs inside your arm, you will be deactivated. You will not be able to access the most basic services and the, most, the sort of places that we need to be able to participate in society and the economy. So, yeah, th- these are two of the things.
0: Uh-huh. It seems to me that it, that surveillance isn't, isn't, and from my perspective, not the likely intention. Because for the last decade, they've surveilled us, and, and our surveillance is in space. The technology is there. There's this the cell phones, the browsers, Google searches. I mean, they know more about you than you do. Uh, so they do you know, I, I, they I, don't I, mean I would agree. I would agree with that.
1: I would say that the the idea of forced compliance is more important yeah it's well, an extra step it's an extra step but on top of that i think where the vaccine passport changes things is that it it's almost like you are getting um consent so so what has happened over the last 10 to 15 years is we're getting more and more um tracking of people's movement more and more tracking of people's um behavior online what they're saying etc cetera, etc cetera. But beyond that, with the vaccine passports, we are, we are essentially, if we allow this to happen, we're accepting this as,
0: as a reality in the future. So there's, it's, one, yeah. it's, it's something I'm a little bit different. I'm when I'm still uh-huh. not convinced, though, because it seems to me the more likely, and I'd and like to dialogue with it, because yeah. the, it's, it seems the, the what makes more sense is they're doing this ultimately to lead to the implementation of central bank digital currencies or CBDCs. Because you need this digital passport as the foundation of the CDDC. Now, no one is, very, is even close to implementing that, but this is the precursor to it. And then forget the surveillance. You have complete control of their financial life. You can essentially make them destitute and homeless in a, in a microsecond with, a, with a, <laughs> one keystroke. So, I mean, that is literally complete control for the most part. I mean, so it seems to me that's the primary reason they're deploying this strategy. And it's, you know, it's like baby steps, right? The vaccine passport, then digital ID and CBDCs. Yeah, I mean, I think that it's, if
1: you look at what the, I mean, right now in Canada, we've got the uh, Premier of Ontario saying, Ontario saying that they are going to withdraw the vaccine passports. We've got Alberta saying it's gonna withdraw the vaccine passports. And this is the message we're getting from all, um, all over the Western world, is that it's time to take a step back. We're now going to let you live your life. We're going to let some kind of normality return. Uh, whereas if you actually look at what they're doing, which is something we have to do more and more of in these times, um, they are instituting digital identity that is going to allow um, not just this kind of control of your vaccine status, but we're looking at, control of your tax records, control of um, Mm -hmm. your employment records. So I mean, like in the UK, we're also seeing the government talking about introducing a digital ID so that employers can determine the identity of of their new workers as they they are hired. Um, All of these things are happening, but like you said, the ultimate step is probably the central bank digital currencies that are likely to come on board in the next, well, probably in the next three to five years, yeah. it's not clear exactly the timeline. It could be a lot earlier than that.
0: Yeah, um, I, I, uh, I agree. Your, your timeline is right on target. That's what, what it seems to be.
1: And yes, the um, the Bank of International Settlements, the, the chairman of the Bank of International Settlements, Augustin Carstens, um, who used to be the um, chairman of the Bank of Mexico. He said openly that the wonderful thing about central banking <laughs> is it allows you to track everything you do. What he didn't say is it allows us to, to deactivate an account. It allows us to stop people from being able to transact. They didn't go that far, but he said like, this is so much different. It's so different from cash. Um, so yeah, people are not really realizing just how this kind of like control grid is kind of being built little by little, piece by piece. Um, but they need to start paying attention.
0: So, so an aspect that many people are familiar with is the social credit system in China.
1: Mm-hmm. So
0: how would you relate or compare that approach to these uh, vaccine passports and digital IDs? Well, I mean, I think
1: that the, The social credit system in China is, to a certain extent, a template. It's where governments probably want to go. They would like to be able to use the new technologies we have to to nudge people into the right sorts of behaviors without having to use more um, overt punishments. So you can either reward people for doing the right sort of things, or you can give them a little um, digital spank every now and then when they're doing the wrong sort of things. And I think that that is where China is, to a large extent, leading the way. Um, ironically, China is, in the research I did for my book, I found that while China's ambitions with the credit, uh, social credit system are essentially unfettered, you know, they want total control, they're not, they're not there yet. They have, um, they're still running quite a few pilot schemes. So it depends where you are in China, the extent to which you are exposed to this kind of system where you're getting points for good behavior and you're getting points deducted for for bad behavior. But the template is there. And you've got companies like Ant Financial, you've got companies like Tencent that are are also, you know, running their own private, you know, these are the equivalents of like the Googles, Facebooks, whatever, that are, Running their own social credit schemes within their their universe, so it's a very complex situation in China. It's maybe not as it's not as complete as some might believe, but but the intentions, the ambition is huge, and I would say that we're definitely seeing examples of this beginning to feed through into into the West. We're seeing banks are talking about using our social media behaviour and to determine our social credit score, which is very similar to what they're doing in China. Um, and there's clearly the means and there's clearly a desire um, to push in that direction. Mm-hmm.
0: So with respect to uh, implementation, do you believe that, especially now with the truckers in Canada and, pullback pull in some of the provinces in Canada on these passports what is your current take on the aggressiveness which these are being deployed do you think it's put put a halt on it or a hold temporary hold or they're going to just maintain what they have and continue and to uh, implement what their strategy is
1: I think it's very difficult to say because what you're uh, there's so much happening right now mm-hmm. where And you have to distinguish between messaging and actual actions. So in Europe after eight months of very strict regulations in many countries and terrible restrictions, we are beginning to see governments talk about at least lifting some of the restrictions, letting people back the unvaccinated back into bars or restaurants even in some places, and um, This is particularly true in the UK, or at least in England and Wales and Northern Ireland. Scotland is still holding on these the next six months. You're seeing Scandinavia, um, Norway talking about, you know, we, we are doing away with this together. So it's interesting to see some countries using that language. But I think you have to be very careful because as they're, as they're talking about doing this, like I said, they're kind of like ushering in digital identity. Um, systems, which are going to be much on, on a much grander scale
0: mm-hmm.
1: than the vaccine passports, and they will include. Um, it seems, at least on the basis of the Ontario um, system that they're talking about putting in place, it will include your vaccine status. So they are. It is. It's extremely <laughs> disingenuous. It's at the very. To put it kindly, um, I think it's. It's. They are misleading their populations in a very dark way. And, and we have to be very aware of what is happening in this regard, because in, like in Europe, a month and a half after the vaccine passport was passed, was put into place, they, they kind of like began work on the digital identity wallet. Mm-hmm. And just the fact that they're using the expression wallet, the fact they're using a, a software, a wallet-based software, Suggest that this
0: clearly has financial
1: implications, financial
0: possibilities. I think we're in both an agreement that the the progression is the VAX passport, the digital ID, and then the CBDCs.
1: I mean, so so, so one thing I wanted to clarify just before you go on, is something you said at the beginning of the the interview. I mean, I'm not sure if I would agree necessarily that the vaccines were, uh, the only purpose
0: behind the vaccines were- No, sure, but it's a primary, I would
1: say that what is definitely true, what is definitely true is that there there were organizations long before the COVID-19 pandemic talking about the possibility of using inoculation, vaccination as a means, as a gateway to to getting digital ID out into the world. Um, And these are very, very powerful organizations with very important financiers. So that is certainly true. but, but I think that more than anything, they just saw a wonderful opportunity to... to yeah, and that's
0: that's what I wanted to discuss because I think we're in agreement that the progression is from these VAX passports to digital ID to CBDCs. So um, it, it seems to me from my perspective that it was maybe, and I agree with you, it just been a convenient that came along and I just said, let's pop this in now because the reality is everyone almost or nearly everyone requires some sort of identification uh the primary reason of course is for most people driving i mean if you're in a country and you know you tip i mean there are places like people live in new york they don't have a car but but most people have driving license and just from the th- this is how they manipulated the in the integration of emf pollution into a, our culture is they ex- they basically first of all discredited all the information uh, and say if there was any potential of harm or damage but then you know and and that's one strategy there's clearly implemented that for this this pandemic but the other is that they focus on convenience because it's so darn convenient to have it so you can make a lot of good justifications and arguments to have a digital form of identification it's so much i mean you can't lose it i mean just you have to have your your cell phone you know and it's easy to update and all these justifications so it's and it seems to me that would have been and, and is likely a far more effective strategy because nearly everyone needs an ID, especially if you're going to uh, implement some type of financial transaction. Your bank requires them; they have KYC. If you're doing a, mm-hmm, a crypto mm-hmm. exchange, you need all this ID to do almost anything. So yeah. why not make it digital and then use that? It, 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 do you? Th- so I'm curious as to what your view on that is.
1: Well, Yeah, I mean, I think that convenience is a a very attractive element um, elements in all this i think that we've already seen in the in the pandemic the first few months of the pandemic how people's consumption habits changed the, the way they the way they paid for things changed um, as they the fear of cash pushed them into the contactless payments and suddenly contactless payments you know we had banks um, pushing up the limits from in, in the case of Spain I think it was 20, 20 euros up to 40 euros um, in the UK I think it went up to 50 pounds so, so that suddenly you could um, buy things much more quickly uh, without having to fish around for change without having to put in your pin number and this is where I think that the the the, the danger of these is that it does have this incredible question of convenience, and I think that especially for people who are under the age of thirty, who probably don't use cash much anyway, for example, and it's just second nature to them. The mobile phone is almost like an extension of their um, of their arm. They they will just click um, for everything. So it's it's hard to fight, and I think that. The thing with digital ID is that there are serious issues that are brought up um, in any debate. So in the UK, I think it was 2008, 2009, the Labour government at that time desperately tried to push through a digital ID system and it was blocked. Uh, There was a lot of public resistance. People didn't want it Um, and they have had to wait until now to push through the, the vaccine mm. passports. Now, say that the UK, there's been more resistance to vaccine passports than there has, for example, been in Spain um, than there has been in most parts of Europe because in Europe, we have, we have identity cards. It's something that is a part and parcel of living in on mainland Europe. Um, this, the US is like the UK. It doesn't have a federal... Um, identity card so trying to persuade um the whole population that they really want or should want to have this, like i think it would have been a, a tough call especially in the uk and the us and um, the vaccine passport what it does is it creates it kind of conditions us to the mm-hmm. to the idea of using your mobile phone to access your workplace access maybe a restaurant to access a bar and once you begin to accept this is just a normal part of your day-to-day then extending that expanding that is not so difficult yeah. and i think that that is that is where the vaccine has been so extreme,
0: extremely useful it's a very good point i had to consider the aspect of public resistance to this so this uh... Lowers the barrier and helps overcome that hurdle, I guess, uh, mm-hmm. and it makes them more uh, accommodating to it. But then, the, you know, the addition in addition to the point of convenience, I mean, they could force compliance with this and make it a requirement. Even though there's a resistance, they could still require it. I mean, they, they can make the laws; they're in control, right? And yeah. if you see, so you, you can resist, but then you don't have your passport or your ID or you're unable to do transactions. So. Uh, but I, I, I suspect it's, it's better for them to get this done with compliance than without. Going against because <laughs> I guess it could create all kinds of havoc.
1: Well, I mean that they can't. I don't think we've got to the point where they, they can mandate these vaccines, for
0: example. So no, no, I but they can they're, mandate they're the really,
1: ID. They are, yeah. I mean, they can make it almost impossible for right, you to right. live without right. it. So, I mean, like, if you are, I mean, for me, one of the best examples is Italy. If you want to look for a country that has really gone into, like, sixth gear with the vaccine passports it's Italy. I mean, a country that has said, look, if you are not, if you don't have this document, you cannot work. You cannot get on a bus and go across town. You cannot get on Mm -hmm. the metro. You cannot, you cannot... Access almost all retail premises apart from supermarkets, pharmacies, mm-hmm. uh, petrol stations, and I think pet stores. So, I mean, like, you were basically closed down, narrowed down the existence to, to such, such a limited one that most people end up just saying, Okay, let's do it. I mean, like, I don't have an alternative, mm-hmm. I'm not going to survive. This. Um, If you have a mortgage and your finances are already tight and your government is telling you you're not going to be able to work, most people crumble. That resistance crumbles very quickly. Um, So they're able to do it. It's not exactly mandated. It's not exactly forcing it, but it's it's Mm -hmm. as good as it's coercion in, in every
0: sense. That's exactly what they did with the vaccines in many places. You know, yeah, they, they, I mean, these coercive threats to uh, get them fired or restrict their privileges or lose their freedoms unless they, they had this vaccine. Most people could they couldn't visit their loved ones. So they they capitulated, surrendered and got the facts. Everybody has a price.
1: And it's those prices. I mean, like everybody, you know, those prices are completely understandable. For some people, it may be small. It may be something that like I want to be able to continue going to the, going to the gym. Um, for other people, it's maybe like I need to travel for my work. And if I cannot travel, I will not have a job. But we all have a price. Um, my wife and I, we are both expats. My wife is Mexican and I'm British. And we cannot travel. Um, or there was a time when going to the UK was, was so hard that I just didn't bother. It was just it was, we had to quarantine for 10 days. Um, and and yes, expats have had a really tough time. So so everybody has a price, and that is mm-hmm. what they know. Um, I think that I was reading one journalist, I can't remember his name, but in Canada, talking about the the truckers, the, uh, the free the freedom convoy, and he was saying like these guys don't represent Canadians at all. Ninety percent of Canadians have have taken the vaccine and they're all perfectly happy with the restrictions and the mandates. It's like, how do you know how many of those 90% actually took the vaccine because they had no choice? Um, it's, it's a very disingenuous
0: argument. Mm-hmm. For sure. Good points, good points. Um, so I, I'm really curious as to what your views are on um, the relative well the near future you know to, into that three or five year period your 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 uh, estimation mine also as to when they're going to implement the cbdc's which seems to be the ultimate goal of these passports so i mean that's i, I mean i don't want you to be a, a fortune teller or predicting mm-hmm. the future but you know, what it, it's to me, it seems inevitable. It doesn't seem like there's anything you can practically do to stop this personally, because of all the factors you just mentioned, it's going to, there's no way out of this. It's coming. You just got to, got to prepare for it. So if, if you agree with that, then the, the the next rational step is that what do you do to prepare yourself and protect you, you and your family?
1: Um, I think that you're right. I think it's probably, it's, I think it's close to inevitable. I don't think, it, I wouldn't go as far as to say it's inevitable. I think we're, we're in the midst of a major battle. Um, mm-hmm. I think that the fact that governments
0: are having to take certain
1: steps Okay, so, battles, so that, that's uh, another
0: argument. So I, I, I'm surprised at your answer, but I, I'm not disagreeing with it. So if it's not inevitable, then that's, there's that's another answer. Within, then what can we do to make it not not inevitable
1: well i think that we have to number one we have to inform as many people as possible that's why i wrote the book um Mm -hmm. i wrote the book hoping to reach people who maybe had been vaccinated but were beginning to have certain doubts Mm -hmm. um people who were on the fence i mean i know plenty of people who have had two shots are wary about having a third one i know plenty Mm -hmm. of people who've had two shots have had um, omicron and they're now thinking why the heck am I having to take a third shot people mm-hmm. are beginning to question this um, I think that we are, we are in the midst of what can only be described as I think an existential battle um, mm-hmm. if we lose this battle it's going to be very difficult as individuals mm-hmm. to protect ourselves because the, the degree of control they will have over us is going to be huge. I think there will be what we are seeing, for example, in Italy, is kind of like this creation of a parallel community, a parallel society where people are able to kind of function. Mm-hmm. Uh, almost, you know, we're seeing signs of bartering beginning to take place between these mm-hmm. within this community. They are surviving as best they can, and we're talking about millions of people who haven't crumbled, whose resistance hasn't, you know, they've, they've not given way yet. Mm-hmm. Um, and i think that gives me a certain amount of hope i think the fact that people have grown tired of the, of the a lot of the restrictions means that yeah, government is having to to a certain extent reconsider but at the same time they are pushing through digital IDs. Mm-hmm. i think this is what is really important for people mm-hmm. to understand right now while they're saying you know we are We are going to abandon the the vaccine passports, even though, again, that isn't true. It's really important to to state this. In most countries where they're saying we are abandoning the vaccine passports, that is not the case. So in in the UK, they've not done that. They have simply shifted from kind of like almost like a mandatory vaccine passport to a voluntary vaccine passport. A little bit like in the US, each company, each organization can choose whether or not to, to enforce it or not. Um, and um, you've got vaccine passports very much in use uh, for international travel. So if you're British, you want to travel to mainland Europe. If you've, not, if you've not got your vaccine passport, you're not going to be able to uh, go to the mainland. And this is the same if you're European, you want to go to the US. It's, um, so there's, there's so much happening, it's hard to keep track. Uh, and that is coming from somebody who spends most of his day trying to keep track of the things. If you mm-hmm. are just someone who is working a nine-to-five job mm-hmm. and you get home and you've got three kids to look after, it's going to be much harder to keep uh, abreast of these developments. But I have a certain amount of hope that um, that they haven't won yet.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I well, they think, clearly haven't won. I um, just <laughs> But I think that I mean, it's, it's, it's an immense amount of power they have. I mean, mm-hmm. we are talking about organizations like the World Economic Forum, which represents almost like, you know, hundreds of the most powerful companies on the planet. We're talking about um, the most powerful governments on the planet. <clears throat> so it's, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's going to be a huge battle and they've got most of the, the advantages in this battle. But I do think that what's happening in Canada suggests that um, a resistance can be formed. And I think that resistance is growing. In Germany, it's certainly growing. Austria, the government is beginning to have second thoughts about the vaccine mandate. You've got, um, based on at least uh, an article I read last week, uh, the Red Cross has withdrawn its support of the Austrian government. I think that there's an element of concern about legal liability because the moment you are literally mandating vaccines population-wide, if you start to see serious vaccine injuries among people who were essentially uh, forced take a medical product then you know these organizations are probably beginning to get a little bit concerned and the fact that the German government is also thinking about maybe not mandating vaccination again that that is I think a positive sign so it's not quite written in stone yet, mm-hmm. the 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 end the ending of the story um, and we're far from it I think that what what concerns me As much as the vaccine passports is what will happen in the economy, in the economic sphere, uh, coming off the kind of like last two years and the supply chain crisis, the amount of inflation we're seeing. I think central banks are, uh, at least the European Central Bank, has painted itself into a corner. It cannot uh, increase interest rates, it cannot. Withdraw from it onto the easing program without putting countries like Italy, heavily indebted countries like Italy and Spain, here. Yeah. But troubles.
0: it's it's not just the European Bank; it's every no. central bank of the world. Yeah, I mean, better, the European Central Bank are, are entering is entering a yes. mm-hmm. they're, they're entering a mathematical inevitability of failure. There is no way out of this. It is going to self destruct. The only question is not if, it's when. Yeah, I think that we are seeing.
1: Clear, clear evidence of um, economic collapse. They are, I think we are already seeing, even before COVID-19, we were seeing the um, Federal Reserve having to lend enormous sums of money to, to banks in the US. Uh, the tensions are building, that's for sure. So
0: that that's, is a parallel issue that has to be considered when, when you're projecting as to what's going to happen with these digital IDs. And they're, they're, they're connected, certainly. So it would seem that if if we're both in agreement that, a mathemat- that mathematical inevitable collapse is coming, you know, then that should suggest some pretty strong rep- personal recommendations. And from my perspective, it would be to develop resiliency, to have access to your own food, food and water supplies, and and shelter, and community as sort of the base resistant because if you don't have those things it's really hard to be resistant to implementation of these strategies because you're so dependent upon the government so it would seem independence from the government uh benefits or uh, you know resources would be a primary goal or objective
1: yeah i think that community is essential Mm -hmm. having people who are or the similar mindset, of a similar worldview, um, people you can definitely count upon. This is not so easy if you're living in a massive city. Um, it's easier if you're in a rural community, certainly. Um, resilience is going to be very tough. I mean, if we're looking at what, one of the things that happened as a result of the lockdowns, as a result of two years of economic crisis, um, Small businesses are in serious straits. Um, They've had to take on huge amounts of debt just to weather the lockdowns.
0: Yeah, that's by design. They did that. They engineered that. (laughs) I think, I mean, I I don't know if I have the
1: exact um, document which proves that, but certainly it's a happy um, side effect at the very least. there's no doubt that large companies have much easier access to cheap debt and small companies. And for me, the greatest tragedy is to see many small businesses, especially small family businesses, that never ever needed to use debt, Mm -hmm. having to take on debt in order just to get through these lockdowns and then struggling to kind of like generate enough revenues to service that debt. And that is something that we're gonna see more and more of going forward. So, and this is tragic because small businesses are a fundamental cornerstone of the community. They're a fundamental part of the global economy. And almost even more important than that, small businesses are run by independent people. Mm -hmm. Um, And and if we begin to see kind of like a massive culling of small businesses, then we're gonna see Less independent and more dependent. So, so yeah, that is one area with which deeply concerned. And if you're looking at uh, an organisation like the World Economic Forum, they don't come out and say like we we want to um, reduce the number of small businesses in the world, but they this organisation represents the biggest banks and biggest
0: companies in the world.
1: Their their um, stakeholders. It's very clear who they are. And it's not small businesses.
0: No, no. It's Mr. Uh, so it's Mr. Global.
1: I would say yes, it's Mr. Global, it's Mr. Davos, It's Davos' man, is Davos woman. Yeah. No, no. People of uh, certain economic means and a certain mindset, but but definitely not small independent businesses.
0: So how would you uh Put together your recommendations for the average person, <clears throat> what they can do to protect themselves and the family from the, this potential inevitability. You know, what can they do to stop it from happening, which was the purpose of writing your book? So how, could you, how would you summarize those recommendations? I
1: mean, I think the purpose of my book was more than anything to warn people who were not worried about what is happening so that they began to worry about what is happening. Um, mm-hmm.
0: I think that but worry doesn't worry doesn't solve anything it's, it's like i agree, waste, I agree. Wasted, it's wasted energy i mean it's it's kind of useless I, unless, unless it motivates you to action okay i think worry
1: is this i mean like worry is awareness awareness yes. is the number one step to mm-hmm. taking action um if you have enough people um in communities in towns in cities seriously Opposing seriously questioning this and spreading the word and telling other people about the risks that vaccine passports and digital IDs represent and the central bank digital currencies, then maybe you do get a critical momentum. Uh, that isn't impossible. I think that what happens, what, what can I recommend people do if there isn't enough critical momentum? I think it's very important in any, I, mean, I I studied history at university, and one of the things that most fascinated me, one of the things I spent most of my time studying were some of the enormous crises of modern European history. So for example, the French Revolution, and mm-hmm. the um, communist dictatorship, or the Soviet years in, in, Ru- in Russia, the uh, Nazi regime and its occupation of countries in Europe, and how people respond to these enormous crises. And I think that, number one, the most important thing and the hardest thing is to maintain your humanity. I think that is fundamental. Um, and that is why having a community around you that you love and that love you is, is absolutely essential to surviving this. I don't think you can be an island and mm-hmm. get to see what is coming think you need the love and the care and the support and the protection of others um, another thing I would suggest if you do have if you do have money if you do have investments try to diversify try to diversify them as much as possible mm-hmm. um, probably not best to have all your money in, in a bank and especially not one bank um, if we do begin to see serious financial crises, I mean, one of the things that I have read about the central bank digital currencies is that it will put enormous extra strains on the banking system, on the Mm -hmm. private banks, because all of a sudden you have supposedly this exceptionally safe backstop, this place where you can put your money, the central bank will never collapse. So if you have another financial crisis, the first thing that people will do is take their money out of the private bank and put it in the
0: central bank.
1: Um, mm-hmm. That is the major risk. So, so yeah, diversify your assets as
0: much as possible. Um, but, but I think well, most importantly-
1: diversification
0: yeah, Diversification seems to be a good strategy, but it would seem, Somewhat unwise, especially with the inflation rate in most countries in the world hovering around fifteen percent or more fifteen percent. That if you keep your money in a bank, your and you're, your interest rate you're earning in a bank is well below one percent, below a half yeah. or one tenth of one percent. And you're so
1: you're not getting one percent.
0: Yeah, people. some some of it. Some of the banks are negative interest rates. You actually have to pay yeah. to put your money in the bank. So but if
1: you're if you're a large company, that's certainly true. And and yeah, if you are a small somebody in Spain for example you're, you're basically getting zero uh, yeah but at the same time you're or paying worse. fees you're yeah, paying yeah. fees so so what they're doing they're not actually charging small time or it should should say individual bank holders uh individual account holders what they're doing is they are ratcheting up the fees mm-hmm. so you're getting zero percent interest and at the same time you're paying ever more in terms of maintenance fees and all these other things so
0: yeah. So, yeah. Back, so, as you say, not the best. I mean, you, obviously, you have to run a bit. If you're running a business, you have to have capital and pay your expenses. So there's some money that needs to be in the bank. But for, th- but for those who are saving, it would seem that it would be an unwise place to park assets. So because you're losing, you're losing a minimum of 15 percent a year. Every year you keep it in that 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 adds up a lot. I mean, fifteen. You know, I think it's like seven years. It's doubled. You know, so you could lose. But I mean,
1: fifteen percent. You would be. I mean, the inflation rate in. Well, I suppose it depends if we're talking about the official inflation rate or the real inflation rate. Um, but but yeah, right now in the U.S. inflation is seven point five percent, more or less, and. Obviously, if you are looking at how they were measuring inflation, yeah, goes back 30, 40 years ago, it's quite a lot higher than that. So yeah. it's, it's absolutely savage. I think that one of the the great tragedies in Europe, in North America, is that we have, it's one of the great things, one of the great stories about Europe and North America over the last 20, 30 years is that we haven't had the sort of crises that we saw in. the 1970s, or we haven't had the sort of crises that you've seen in Latin America. So so we've grown rather complacent. Mm -hmm. But now we're beginning to go through a crisis that is (coughs) affecting everybody's finances, rich and poor alike, although the poor are far more exposed to it. So
0: so where where would you suggest to put Someone's asked us, and if it's not the bank, because as we said, you're losing 15%. I mean, I am not a
1: financial advisor, so I'd be very wary about telling anybody what they should be doing. Um, I mean, I think when I say diversification, you should be, if you have money, then again, if you're looking at somewhere like Mexico going through the Tequila crisis in the 1990s, or Brazil going through the sort of crises, the huge hyperinflation it has, um, mm-hmm. how do you survive that relatively intact where you own real assets, you own property, If you have the money to own property, um, maybe you own precious metals. It's, it's funny when you see uh, Latin American people in Barcelona where I live, uh, what they do a lot of people when they, when they ha- come into money, when they have you know, savings, they will convert some of that money into, even if it's just gold, jewelry, um, it's something that is kind of part of their consciousness because they've been through multiple crises where their wealth has been significantly eroded and in, 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 in ways that we can't even imagine, but we are beginning to see that. So yes, I would suggest um, that that is not a bad lesson to learn from those countries. If you're looking at Turkey right now, which has a ridiculous, you know, inflation is absolutely surging there and people are using gold, they are looking at cryptocurrencies, they are doing anything except keeping their money in Turkish lira and that in turn exacerbates the weakness of the Turkish lira. So it's it's a heck of a vicious cycle we are, we risk falling into.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and sadly, all the currencies in the world are in the same boat, <laughs> not one that's better than the other. Dollars. They're all in the same boat. The dollar's the of best them, of the worst. Yes, I
1: mean, like, some of them are closer to the edge of the boat, yeah. and the dollar may be closer to the center of the boat. But yeah, it's, it's, it's tragic. Um, I, my wife is Mexican. I speak to her family. I speak to friends of hers on a regular basis, and they tell me about how, how hard it was going through these crises. And, like I said, I think that we've, we've kind of had it nice and easy for a few decades in, in the so-called northern hemisphere of the West. Um, and, and that has kind of bred a certain amount of complacency. And now we're about to go through a genuine crisis that will affect us all.
0: All right. So getting back to the passports, the topic of your book. Um... <laughs> It would seem the first recommendation is to resist getting it <laughs> in any way, it's shape, just or way. getting
1: the vaccine passport, yeah. I think that if, you know, Italy is an interesting case in point. You've got a country where they've made it almost impossible to live without it, yet there are still mm-hmm. millions of people who haven't fallen. Um, and the same thing could be said of France, the same thing could be said of uh, Germany. Try to resist getting it. at the moment, it's, it's not easy, but inform yourself about digital identity programs being taken, you know, being rolled out or at least planned in your local, whether it's your local region or whether it's your, the country you live in, try to inform yourself because this is happening. It's happening. And when i started writing this book i noticed this was happening in the european union i noticed this was happening in the uk and it's happening in new zealand it's happening in australia it's happening um in canada it's uh it's all over the place so so yeah we need to be i think very very conscious of what digital identity means and at least have a discussion about it at least inform ourselves about what this could mean
0: yeah so any other recommendations you have to resist the impending tyranny
1: any other recommendations buy my book
0: um,
1: no. <laughs> it's a good start <laughs> buy
0: my well book the best, and... best way to, the best way to incite and in, encourage or catalyze purchase of your book is to give people the best strategies in the book, because if you're willing to give those away, they're gonna, they, I can't believe that. I gotta get the book to see what else is in there. Because it's impossible to cover completely in, a, in an hour, a whole no, book. No, it's just, I you can't do it. I completely agree. Um, no, I think that fundamentally we
1: have to, um, like I said, we have to talk to people. I think that one of the scariest things about the lockdowns we've been through over the last year and a half is is that it has been an alienating experience. It has been, we have been separated from those closest to us in many ways. We've gone through serious psychological um, torment and it's, it's important, I think, to realize that, and at the same time, we are going through constantly confusing, confounding Um, periods where we are being told one thing one day, another thing another day, it's hard to know what is happening around us. So I think that it's it's vital to try to to stay fixated on the most important things. I think that fundamentally we are, what makes Western liberal democracies so important, not just for those Western um, liberal democracies, but for the world as a whole, is that there is some degree of individual freedom. There are there are basic rights that uh, are absolutely invaluable. Things like the freedom of speech. Now, we probably don't, most people living in the West today probably don't value it. Mm-hmm. As much as we should, it's the sort of thing you don't value until you've lost it. But if you go to a country like Saudi Arabia and you speak to people there, most people won't even tell you <laughs> what they actually think because they're terrified. Mm-hmm. That is a reality of living in a dictatorship. Um, and when you no longer have the ability to speak openly, whether on social media or whether in a bar or a restaurant, you're already on on the path to dictatorship. So I think that it's it's fundamental to to yeah, value there. what we have. We're there in the United States. We're totally there. <laughs> I think like the, the Joe Rogan thing, Joe Rogan is 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 a very, very, very important um, watershed moment. It's uh, he was supposed to be the uncancelable man and they've done the best they can and they're, they're they're still fighting to try and get him removed uh from us so it's if they can get rid of joe rogan or if they well i don't think that they can get rid of joe rogan but if they can get they Spotify, him. if they can at least silence him from spotify well they can't,
0: and can't they can you know, it's it, it's it's a effort that's a hundred percent doomed to fail because they can't eliminate rogan they can eliminate Spotify from hosting him on their platform, but there's already been another platform, Rumble, that offered him the same amount of money, hundred million dollars. So, I mean, he's got an audience. His audience will follow him wherever he goes. So they can't shut him down. They can't shut him down. And a lot of people are uh, maybe annoyed would be the incorrect term, but you know that he capitulated, and surrendered so easily with those those apologies uh, because he apologized unnecessarily. I mean, he should have stood his, stood his ground. I mean, that's what a lot, that's what I believe and love other people do. But, but uh, I, but I appreciate what he's biggest, doing. For me,
1: for me, the biggest thing was the idea of having a warning label on any, I mean, that shouldn't exist in any democracy. You shouldn't have right. a warning label on what is essentially a discussion program. Um, and, we've already seen the amount of misinformation coming out of mainstream media. There's no pressure on them. There's no suggestion that they would need any kind of uh, warning label. And yet many of the worst lies that have led us into the worst uh, actions and decisions on a collective basis have been down to uh, misinformation coming from the mainstream media. So so that was probably the biggest surrender of his. It was the most important one. And, but like you said, he can go elsewhere. The scary mm-hmm. thing is imagine like where, you, where you live in a totally cashless society um, and we're seeing this with the uh, GoFundMe mm-hmm. uh, situation with the Canadian uh, truckers. It's, it's this ability to control the finance. It's this ability mm-hmm. to... Yeah. That's the core. That's the core. Right. Yeah. It's, it's ultimately money. And, and like you said, I mean, CBDCs are an essential element of this. Perhaps they are the kind of like the final stage of this process. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. But, but yeah, they will not be able to get the CBDCs out properly and impose them unless they can be successful with the digital IDs and the vaccine. So, so it's, uh, it's a long way still to go.
0: Yeah. so there is some hope that it, is, it doesn't appear to be inevitable, but uh, it's good. <laughs> I mean, you can make some strong arguments that it might be, but uh, nothing yeah, I, is I, I for think, sure. Nothing I is think for sure. The, yeah, I think nothing's for sure. I think the idea that,
1: um, the idea that these things are inevitable it's, itself, is wonderful for for those organisations pushing the argument, you know, pushing these things, <clears throat> because it makes people extremely well, you know, extremely passive, extremely mm-hmm. um, just well. It's just accepted. There's nothing we can do. I think that there's still a huge amount that we can do, um, but but yes, it, there's a very small window of time in which to do it. I think that you know people like you are doing a great job in in awakening people to this extremely dark threats looming above us and around us and below us and everywhere. So, so you've done a great job in that regard.
0: Yeah, so my perspective is that clearly. Money is important. There's no question. It's hard to survive without it. But ultimately, what's even more important is your health, which is what I've been focusing on for a long, long time. Since last century, I've been doing this. So uh, well before last century, before Google started their own site. So you know, it's my encouragement for people to understand that at a foundational basis, and not to capitulate and surrender through these processed foods, and take autonomy of your body, and implement strategies that are outside. Because conventional medicine is every bit as corrupted and crooked as conventional mainstream media. They're in fact, in many places, they're they're, they're identical. They're pe- they're passing the same information the. the one of the biggest sponsors is the pharmaceutical industry the commercial media. You look it up. I mean, you've, I'm sure you've, everyone's seen those videos of all the ads that's uh, or the programs that's, spot, that's sponsored by Pfizer. So, which is the largest pharmaceutical company in the world, which also has the best-selling drug ever adopted in the history of the world, which was the COVID vaccine that they put out last year made $37 billion. So clearly a financial. Yeah, financial incentive behind this. But ultimately, you have control. If you understand this and, and implement the strategies I've been explaining and teaching you for the last quarter century, then you're, you're, that is a, one of the most important parts of resilience, because you've got to have your health. When you don't, you're much more susceptible to rely on governmental intervention, governmental interventions. But if you can avoid that and avoid seeing the doctor because most all mainstream doctors have capitulated surrendered. They're, they're literally slaves of the state. I mean, when you graduate medical school, you are it's literally somewhere between, I, I don't know what the exact averages, but I believe it's somewhere between a quarter and a half a million dollars in debt before you even open up your door. So you, that makes it virtually impossible, uh, for most any graduating physician to go out on their own. They have to be workers and they have to follow the dictates of who they're working for otherwise they're fired and even worse they could you know like they've done some i mean meryl nass a magnificent independent physician who who doesn't have financial restrictions but they took her license away for telling the truth um so you know it's it's a challenge but anyway you want to stay out of the conventional medical system because the, the the doctors are i mean they're committed well-intentioned individuals, but they're, they're under constraints and they cannot provide you with the things that you need, which is your responsibility. Ultimately, you should be your own resp- own doctor and choose your foods, choose your exercise and your lifestyle so that your body obtains what it needs so that you are resistant to diseases and love diseases like COVID, but anything else they're going to throw it like hemorrhagic fever or who knows what they have up their sleeves. But when you're healthy, your body will be much more able to effectively resist it. So I think that's, to, in my mind, and admittedly, I'm highly prejudiced and biased. <laughs> I think it's health. You've got to be healthy because that's, yeah. you know, and then community is essential. That's part of health. Community is your health. I mean, the, the, the social element of that is just incredibly important. So, I mean, you have to have physical health, but you also have to have community. And I think that's the one, two strategy to to, to provide you with the leverage to have the opportunity to resist this, because if you, if you don't do those things, you're going to, you're going to capitulate and surrender far more likely than, than, than not because you're, you're kind of forced they force your hand, like they have so many people with getting the jab, you know?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think that the, the question of health, I mean, what you are saying is like, be the master of your own body. Mm-hmm. Again, it's an incredibly empowering idea, but it it's not what they want. They don't want us to be Of course they don't. It's
0: just, so you like, we, we get what they want.
1: Healthy individuals. We
0: get what out. we want.
1: <laughs> yeah. It's it's a scary thing. It's scary to watch how... I mean, like, Mexico is a country that... One of, one of the countries that um, began using ivermectin in early 2021 with... Well, seems like quite a lot of success and now they've just stopped. They've just stopped. It's not been reported much in the press. Um, The resistance to these off-patent medicines that offer some degree of treatment potential or seem to offer some degree of uh, treatment potential is incredible compared to when you see a drug like Remdesivir that has been, seemingly doing enormous damage to a lot of patients and has very little in the way of benefits. It's still being used as far as I'm aware in US. Well, it's got be. a major benefit. It's got a major benefit. Yeah, it's enormously,
0: it's enormously profitable to the people <laughs> selling it. That's yeah. his primary benefit. And that's yeah. Li- yeah. literally the primary reason why it's been deployed.
1: I mean, one of the things that most people don't know, which I think if they did know, they might see the world a little bit, or they might see this pandemic a little bit more differently, is the the fact that almost all medicine regulators in the Western world are largely funded by the pharmaceutical companies they are Mm -hmm. regulating. Um, yeah. it's it's an incredible right. conflict of interest, and it's very yeah. similar to what happened in the global financial crisis when the ratings agencies were essentially being paid by the, the people who were issuing the debt that they were supposed to be rating.
0: right it's, so, it's an obvious conflict of interest. Yeah, most people are absolutely unaware of this massive conflict of interest, so and it'd be and they're, they're, for good reasons, I mean it's suppressed. I mean the, the media's mm-hmm. not going to expose that. So, um, all right, well, the name of your book is Scanned, if you've been intrigued with this conversation. Many more fascinating details are in the book, and it's something that I yeah, would encourage the, the you. To name, the full name, the full I've name. Give us the full myself. name. Yes, I didn't memorize
1: yeah. it. I've more or less trained myself to say it. Um, scanned, why vaccine passports and digital IDs
0: will mean the end of privacy and personal freedom. Yeah. So that's, that's, that's a good subhead that goes into more detail what the book's about. But, you know, it's a derivative of our conversation today. So you've uh, got a chance to listen and uh, hopefully you've acquired some pearls and, and uh, inspired to take some type of positive action so that we don't have this inevitability of implementation of these passports, digital, uh, digital IDs and CBDCs. So
1: I appreciate all you've done. Mm -hmm. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure to be on.